going to continue on thinking through um, what we've been looking at for the last couple of Sundays. Uh, if you haven't been with us, we've been preaching through the Gospel of John, and we've just finished chapter 5, and the question has come up based on that chapter, what do we do with the Sabbath day? How are we to understand the Sabbath day and how that relates to New Testament worship? Um, and so this is the third message that we're going to uh, think about as we've uh, tried to address that topic. Uh, and today we're looking at, is the Lord's Day the Christian Sabbath? Is the Lord's Day the Christian Sabbath? I'll give a very short review of where we've been. Number one, we've talked about our approach. That is, how do we figure out, how do we find an answer? Where do we receive clarity on a question like this? It's, uh, it's a kind of a popular um or in some circles anyway. Um, it's not just uh, divided up by denominational lines. This is uh, uh, just as popular among Baptists as anybody else uh, to think about and even to hold to the fact that there are some Sabbath restrictions, Sabbath laws that ought to be laid out on the Lord's Day. Um, things that you can do to violate the Lord's Day in the sense of... Um, you know, setting aside Sundays in a sense that it would be wrong for you to spend money on Sunday. It would be wrong for you to, um, after a day of worship, it would be wrong for you to uh, go home and watch TV or listen to the radio or do anything else like that. Uh, and so the question is, um, really, which is the question that we would use to answer any question, does the Bible say that? Do we find that anywhere in Scripture? And so our approach is we're looking for our answers based on um, the authority of Scripture, Matthew 4.4, 4, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Okay, So we want to answer this in a way, and you want to live in a way as a Christian that is consistent with what God has said. So we do not, and this is again, this is our approach. It's important that we, we clarify this or the rest doesn't really even matter. We do not live off of assumptions, inferences, or arguments from silence. Revelation is something that God gave us directly, not through implications, okay? not through assumptions, not through inferences. It has not entered into the heart of man the things that the Lord has in store for His people. And so because of that, He has given us a direct revelation. No man has seen God except for the only begotten Son who was from the bosom of the Father. He has declared Him. So we're talking, as far as our approach goes to the authority of Scripture, what has proceeded out of God's mouth concerning this particular topic. Now, then we want to, again, a slight review of last Sunday when we just tried to get an understanding of the Sabbath from an Old Testament perspective. So we asked four questions, tried to answer those, and so here were the four conclusions. Number one, when you think about the Sabbath, what does that mean? It means to rest or to cease from labor. That's what the or to cease from anything, really, just to cease. You could leave it there is where the, uh, many of the definitions leave it. 
So a Sabbath means to rest or to cease. Uh, The Sabbath day was instituted as part of the Mosaic law. Now that Mosaic law uh, was based on the creation account. Okay, These were the conclusions we came to after looking at it last week. If you haven't listened to that yet, you would probably it would be helpful for you to do that because I'm not going to rehash it here. Um, but the question that people have is, is the, is the Sabbath a creation ordinance or is it an ordinance that was instituted at the Mosaic law? Uh, the answer that we have as we look to see what God has actually said is that it's an institution of the Mosaic law. We have absolutely no record of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Adam, Eve, any of those guys having some sort of an adherence to the Sabbath day. So it's uh, articulated, the regulations are all revolving around and given at the time of uh, the Mosaic law. Now third, we said, what was the purpose here? And in passages like Exodus 31 and Ezekiel 20, uh, the Lord tells us that the Sabbath was given as a sign or a symbol of His covenant with His people. It was a distinction between the people of God and the heathen. The people of God would set aside the seventh day and it it was a sign of this covenant that God had made with them through the Mosaic Law. And then the heathen would look at that and see that there would be a distinction. Again, we said that was really another, another argument for the fact that this was not a creation ordinance. It would make no sense that there would be a distinction to even be made if the Lord expected and laid out at the beginning of creation that everybody would observe this seventh day. Um, that would be about like me saying, we have set aside the uh, symbol of you eating lunch to make a distinction between who's a Christian and who's not. Well, if everybody's eating lunch on Sundays, what does that do? Nothing, right? So, same sort of a thing. Now, number four, we the question, this really is the million-dollar question, how do you keep the Sabbath? How do you keep the Sabbath? And the Sabbath day was to be kept through a strict adherence to Sabbath laws that went into effect from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. The children of Israel didn't get to pick and choose what they were going to do. The Lord told them exactly what they could do, and really it's probably better to say what they could not do. So they uh, were not to do any work. They couldn't go pick up sticks. They couldn't kindle a fire. Uh, They were to stay in their dwelling and they were to rest. And whenever we looked at this in Leviticus 23 and noticed that the Lord said, even in the middle of your um, festivals and even in the middle of your feast, when Israel would come together and assemble, He said, even in those on the Sabbath day, you need to set that aside for rest and a holy convocation or a holy assembly. And the holy assembly there was not assembling with Israel to worship. They were actually, they needed to leave and go home or go to their dwelling and assemble with their families there for, for rest. Okay, so 
the reason why it's important to establish what we did last week is because if, and I think the, the biblical uh, information points to this, if the Sabbath is part of the Mosaic law, then what the New Testament tells us is um, if you're going to live under the law, you've got to live under every bit of it. You don't get to pick and choose. So, we said this tongue-in-cheek last week, but the truth is, if you are present this morning, you have already violated the Sabbath, all except for Scott. He's the only person who gets to live in the congregation this morning. Everybody else is going to find yourself under a pile of stones if this is what if you're going to adhere to the Sabbath. And somebody says, well, you know, we're not extreme like that. I just don't think you ought to fill in the blank. Okay? And the response is, God doesn't care what you think. That's why He's spoken. Okay? His Word is meant to renew your mind. And you don't have the liberty to say, I think we should do this and I think we should do that. So as we think about this, again, we're thinking, what does the Word actually say? And then what do we do with that? So we parked it pretty much in the Old Testament last week. Now, for this week, we're thinking about what does the New Testament say? What do we find in the New Testament? And again, the question is, is the Lord's Day the, the Christian Sabbath? And uh, we're going to break it up into four more categories or four more questions here. So number one, we're just thinking about this from a survey standpoint. When you think about the New Testament, what does the New Testament say about the Old Testament Sabbath? What does the New Testament say about the Old Testament Sabbath? Well, when we're thinking about the Gospels, um, Jesus does make a few clarifications. Again, he's talking about the Old Testament Sabbath here. He does make a few clarifications because when you get into the New Testament, like John chapter 5, the Pharisees had taken the Sabbath and the Sabbath laws and had added so much to those that they weren't that the Sabbath wasn't even recognizable to what God had laid it out to be to begin with. And so they had taken them, they had made so many um, clarifications and so many additions to the applications of the law um, that they were equating the traditions of men with the Word of God. And so Jesus makes a couple of clarifications for that. Number one, and, and I'm not going to go too much in depth on these because they're not really, um, they don't really add a lot to the understanding that we're going for. But number one, Jesus says in Mark chapter 2, verses 27 through 28, He makes the clarification to the Pharisees and to the Jews that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Okay, he's saying that God instituted, God put the Sabbath in place for man's benefit. Okay, and we said this a little, I think last week or maybe the week before, but what Jesus is saying here is that God did not create the Sabbath and then decide to, to, to create men to populate it as if the Sabbath existed for the Sabbath itself. He says the Sabbath exists for man's benefit. This setting aside a day for rest, that was for your benefit. Primarily, it was for you. Then in Mark chapter 3, verse 4, 
Jesus is healing the man with a withered hand and he's getting uh, some criticism because of that. And then he asked this question, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Now, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 12, he just flat out says that it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So the, the Jews, again, were saying, you know, you can heal and that's fine, but you better not dare do it on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, well, if you can get an ox out of a ditch, surely you can heal somebody. And then he makes this just general statement. It is lawful for you to do good on the Sabbath. Now, when you look throughout the Gospels, um, as far as the two big clarifications that Jesus lays out, these are the two. And then here's a, an aspect of this before we get into Romans and Colossians that sometimes people uh, have genuine questions about. The fact that Jesus kept the Sabbath, right? He was, he was accused of breaking the Sabbath in John chapter 5. That's not the case. He makes the argument that he's, number one, he's the Lord over the Sabbath, but then number two, he never broke it. He kept it. He observed it. And so the question is, if Jesus observed these Sabbath regulations, was that for, was that for our example? Or was that for our righteousness? In other words, because Jesus observed the Sabbath, does that mean we ought to follow his example and we ourselves observe the Sabbath. Well, I think you already know where I'm going with this. Jesus observed the entire law. He was blameless, undefiled, sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Why? Well, it was because He was the atonement for our sins. He came in the volume of the book. It was His delight to do the will of the Father. And we have received a perfect righteousness that comes from His life, not ours. And so when we think about the fact that Jesus kept the Sabbath, part of the Mosaic law, that's part of Jesus living a perfect life and giving us, imputing to us, a perfect righteousness. Okay, so whenever you think about the Sabbath and the Gospels, um, these are primarily what you're going to get out of that. I mean, there's a few other, I mean, the synoptics are things that come up more than once, but these are the primary things that, that come up. Now, you get into the epistles, and, and, and we start to zero in a little bit. So I'm not going to... I'm not going to turn here, but if you're taking a note, um, write this down. Uh, but there are two passages primarily, Romans 14 and Colossians 2. We're going to turn to Colossians 2. But in Romans chapter 14, verses 5 through 6, Paul says, do not condemn others. Do not judge or condemn others over the observance or the lack of observance of holy days. Okay, This is a section that's primarily addressing Christian liberty. And part of what he puts in there is holy days. That is, days, who, days that were set apart. And the Sabbath was surely a day that was set apart. 
He says, don't condemn people over either observing those or not observing those days. Now, when we get to Colossians 2, he's going to cover the same thing, but he's going to also specifically mention Sabbath. So Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. In Romans 14, he says, do not condemn. In Colossians 2, he's going to say, do not let anyone condemn you. Okay, So you get two sides of the same coin. Do not set yourself up as the judge of another person over the way they handle these holy days. But then Colossians 2 says, don't let someone set themselves up as a judge over you concerning these things. Now, that's not the same thing as saying, uh, do not allow someone to judge you concerning any of these other blatant commands in Scripture as far as do not kill, do not lie what we're going to get to later in Hebrews chapter 10, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. He's talking about um, uh, old Jewish law, holy days, observances, those kinds of things. So let me start reading and you'll see that. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink, or in respect of a holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Okay, so he says, do not let anyone judge or condemn you based on these things. That is what you eat, Okay, meat, that's meat that's... um, Sacrifice to idols or not, that was an issue that came up a lot. And drink, in respect to a holy day, new moon, or of the Sabbath days. All of this is tied into what we were talking about last week. Now here's the real question. On what basis, Paul, why could you and why would you say, don't let someone judge you? Well, we just need to back up a little bit. Okay, He tells us the principle in verse 17. These things are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. These restrictions on diet, these holy days, these Sabbaths, these new moons, all of those things were shadows that were pointing to something else that were pointing to the substance of something. What is that substance? Well, it's Jesus Christ. You go up and you see that fits right in with the, with the uh, uh, argument that Paul's making, his greater argument. Starting in verse 8, Paul says, Beware lest any man spoil you through the philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power. Okay, don't let anyone judge you based off of these things. Don't let anyone condemn you based off of these things. Why? Because you're, you're complete in Christ. What does that mean? That means that you have everything that you need as far as the fulfillment of righteousness 
in Christ. He's the substance of all of that. He keeps going. If you jump down to verse 14, it says that he blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Now, it's, it's, the distinction needs to be made that when we're saying that we are complete in Him and that He's blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that were against us, okay, this is not saying don't worry about living a holy life. Don't worry about sin issues. Just kind of you know do your own thing. Who cares? Because you're in Christ and that's that. No, it's not what it's saying. But in reference to the law, it is saying Christ has fulfilled. Christ has completed what needed to be complete. Christ, who was the substance of the shadow, is here. We're not looking for that anymore. And so it's worth noting that when it comes to the Sabbath, either we're dealing with sin issues or we're not. Okay? It can't be one or the other. And if we are thinking about sin issues, then let's think about this. Is there anything in Scripture that would lead us to believe that you can do something on Monday that wouldn't be a sin if you did it on Tuesday? Anything at all. The day you do it determines whether or not it's a sin. Okay, so if you kill somebody on Wednesday... Would you have been better off waiting until Thursday? That's a silly question, isn't it? If you lie to somebody, is it the day that matters or is it the act? I mean, we begin to think about these things and some of the more popular restrictions that people like to put on the Sabbath. Is it a sin to watch TV? Well, the answer to that is it depends on what you're watching, right? But the answer is certainly not depends on what day it is. Is it a sin to enter into some sort of a recreation? Now, again, I'm not thinking about blatantly sinful things. Well, certainly the, day, the, the answer is not depends on what day. He says, you are complete. You, are, uh, you have everything that you need in Him. It doesn't mean that sin no longer exists. It means that your requirement to fulfill the Mosaic law is done away with. He has blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. What does that mean? It means He's taken the Mosaic law and He's done away with it. You're no longer under those burdens. You're no longer under that bondage. And notice the way he describes it in verse 14. Blotting out of the handwriting ordinance, that was against us, that was contrary to us. And he took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Now, was there anything wrong with the law? No. The law was perfect. The problem wasn't with the law. The problem was always with our ability to keep the law. And then the problem is also in the way that we try to use the law. 
Because when we get into the New Testament, we find out that the law was always intended to be a schoolmaster to point us to Christ, not a platform to prop our own righteousness up on. We were always going to be condemned by the law. No man was going to be justified by the law. Romans 3 says there was this new law that came into effect and it was the law of faith. So Colossians 2 says, don't let anyone condemn you. Don't let anyone judge you concerning these things. Why? Because you're complete in him. Don't be carried away by vain philosophies, by traditions. You're complete in Him. Number two, because He's blotted out the handwriting of ordinances. If the Sabbath was part of the Mosaic Law, it's gone now. Another way to say that, we looked at this at the very end of our time together last week, but Ephesians chapter 2 Verse 14, speaking of Jesus Christ, it says, For He is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in His flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in Himself of twain one new man, so making peace. Now, And the point here that I'm after is in verse 15. He abolished in his flesh the enmity or the law of commandments that stood between us and God and between Jew and Gentile. What does abolish mean? I mean, he's done away with it. It's gone. It's no longer binding. You no longer live or die based on the commands. Okay, so again, what does the... New Testament say, well, we said, you know, Jesus makes some clarifying remarks about the Sabbath itself. Romans 14, Colossians 2 says, do not judge anyone over the way they handle holy days, um, which Sabbath would would be included. Colossians 2 says, don't let anyone judge you. Don't let anyone manipulate you. Don't let anyone condemn you based on your lack of observance of these things. Now then, I want to go to Matthew chapter 11. and We're going to tie it in with Hebrews 4, but look in Matthew 11. Remember, we said the Sabbath is, it just means to rest or to cease. In Matthew 11, starting in verse 28, Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, You may look at that and say, well, anybody could do a search on the word rest and come up with something like that. But what connects this to the Sabbath? And that's a good question. And what connects it to the Sabbath is chapter 12, because immediately after this passage, Matthew goes into 
a treatment of the Sabbath in chapter 12. Now, you'll remember when it comes to the inspiration of Scripture, the Holy Spirit did not give us chapter and verse numbers. Okay? Somebody else did that, and I'm thankful they did. I'm not critical of that. But when Matthew wrote, Matthew wrote with intent and he wrote with purpose. And so he goes straight into the story where Jesus and his disciples are walking through the fields of uh, uh, the wheat fields. It calls it corn here, but the, the, the grain fields and they're plucking uh, and eating and, and the Pharisees see it and they condemn them and, and ask if it's lawful and so forth and so on. Well, he... he he, he gets into this whole narrative with this section. Come unto me, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And I will admit, you could say if this is all we have, Brother Lewis, that's a bit of a stretch. But if you go to Hebrews chapter 4, you find out it's not so much of a stretch. Look in Hebrews 4. Now, Hebrews 4, the, the reoccurring theme in these first 11 verses is this rest that needs to be entered into or this rest that can be entered into. And, and the warning is, do not do what the children of Israel did who could not and did not enter into that rest because of their unbelief. And I want to read the first 11 verses here and then we'll make our point. Hebrews chapter 4. Remember the, the book of Hebrews is uh, thematically is pointing these, these Jews to the fact that Christ is better. Don't turn away. Don't go back to the old law. Continue. Endure. And so verse 4 says, let us, I'm sorry, chapter 4 verse 1 says, let us therefore uh, fear lest a promise being left us of entering into His rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest. As He said, I have sworn in My wrath if they shall enter into My rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again, he limiteth a certain day, saying today, saying in David, today, after so long a time, as it is said today, if you will hear His voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would He not afterward have spoken of another day. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that has entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from His. 
Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Okay, so as I said earlier, the, the thing that continues to come up in this passage is entering into the rest that those Old Testament saints did not enter into, particularly those who wandered in the wilderness and as Joshua took them in to the promised land and they did not believe and did not fulfill all that the Lord had called them to do. He brings a correlation of this rest back to God resting on the Sabbath. And he says, be careful. Make sure that you enter into this rest that they couldn't enter into it. And the question is, how? How do you enter into this rest? How do you enter into this Sabbath? Well, you can read the text for yourself. But the way that you enter into this rest is by faith in Christ. It says they fell in the wilderness because of unbelief. They couldn't enter into this rest because of unbelief. They would not believe. They hardened their hearts. They continued to stubbornly rebel. Verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 4 says, For we which have believed do enter into rest. Verse 9, There remains a rest therefore... I'm sorry, there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God, for he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. How do we enter into this rest? What are the works that we're ceasing from? These labors that we are resting from as we've said before in scriptures that we've looked at in past weeks the sabbath was a day where you were to set aside all work all labor and rest and what was it a shadow of well it was a shadow of the substance the substance being christ and in Christ and those who are called to, drawn to, and brought to faith in Christ, we rest from our labors. We, we're, we're not condemned by turning the light switch on on Sunday morning. We're not condemned by even the past, present, and future sins that we commit as far as it relates to our salvation. We're not on the roller coaster of a performance-based relationship with God. But we are coming to Him through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in that sense, we are resting from our labors. We have come to Him and we've taken His yoke upon us and we found His burden to be light. And we enter into that rest, how? By faith. By faith. Ephesians 1.6, He has made us to be accepted in the Beloved. If you're accepted with God the Father, it's only one way. And that's through Jesus Christ. There's a lot of rest in that. A lot of rest in that. You see, the, the, the reality is, is if we understand this Sabbath rest from a New Testament perspective, 
then it moves away from you have to rest and it moves into enter into the blessing of your rest. Okay, this is something that is such a blessing because you can cease from your labors in Christ. Your forgiveness is wrapped up in Him. Your acceptance is wrapped up in Him. Your righteousness is wrapped up in Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He took our sin upon Him and He placed His righteousness upon us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. says, but of Him, that is God the Father, but of Him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. What's he saying here? He's saying that everything that you are and everything that you have before the Father has been given to you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's outside of you. And when we think about sanctification, there's a sense in which positionally we are in Christ and so we are declared righteous. Okay, that's, all, that's of Him. That's all of Him. There's another sense, the practical side of sanctification, where you're being conformed to the image of Christ by one degree of glory to the next. And all that we're doing is working out what God has already worked in through the power of His Spirit. And so any practical progress we make, although effort is required, any practical progress that we ever make in sanctification is all because of what Christ has done and what Christ has provided in us and for us. And so the Sabbath rest is really the substance of the Gospel. That is, rest from your labors. Rest from your pursuit of establishing your own righteousness. Rest from the legalistic bindings of trying to clean yourself up before God and trying to live in a way that somehow brings you merit with God. And I don't mean living in a way that pleases God. That's something that we ought to do. That's something that we're called to do. I'm talking about living in a way that says, if you don't do this, it's because you're not as holy as me. It's because uh, God is, or, or as a result of it, God is not as pleased with you as He is of me. We've talked about this before. But if God is pleased with you, it is only because you're in Christ. The fact that you read your Bible this morning has nothing to do with God's position toward you. His stance toward you. Now, could you be blessed by that? Of course. But God doesn't like you any more than He would have otherwise. The fact that you're here this morning, it's wonderful and it's a blessing and I think God is pleased with that. But God doesn't like you anymore because you're here. Everything you have, you have because it's wrapped up in Christ. And at this point, somebody may be thinking, Brother Lewis, you better slow down. We're trying to gain members, not lose them. Right? Well, whenever we get to the reality of what the Lord's Day is celebrating and who the Lord's Day is for, brothers and sisters, you find a converted Christian who is aware of all that they have in Christ 
And then you began to, and we're going to have to, I thought I would do this in three messages, but it's going to have to be four. And then you began to talk about worshiping God in spirit and in truth and communing with the Lord and coming together and assembling with God's people for worship and for stirring one another up for love and to good works. Listen, if I have to badger you every week about church attendance, something's wrong. Something's wrong. The Lord is looking for those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Not for those who have to be wrangled and mangled in order to get them in the pew. That's not real worship. It's those who are coming freely out of a heart of gratitude who are entering in from the heart in true worship. So, what does the New Testament say about the Old Testament Sabbath? Well, it says the things that we just mentioned. Jesus makes some clarifying comments. Romans and Colossians, don't let anyone judge you, or that is, don't let anyone bind these things on you. And then Hebrews 4, Matthew 11, that our true Sabbath Our true rest comes as we place our faith in Jesus Christ and we rest from our labors and through faith embrace what He has accomplished for us. Now we're going to have to go quickly through the next uh, couple of points here. So the, the, the next point here is the Lord's Day. Right? What does Scripture say and what are we, why, why is it that we worship on uh, the first day of the week instead of the seventh day of the week? Well, all four Gospels clearly call attention to the fact that Jesus rose on the first day of the week. Okay, Matthew 28.1, Mark 16.2, Luke 24.1, John 20.19, they all take the time to clarify that Jesus Christ rose on the first day of the week. Okay, and then when you get into the New Testament you find that the New Testament saints began to worship and God does some big things again on the first day of the week rather than the seventh. So the first big thing we see, the first time where God blesses the first day of the week in a big major way happens on the day of Pentecost. You know that story in Acts chapter 2. People are gathered together. This is the day whenever God fulfilled what He said would happen in Joel chapter 2, 28-32, where He poured His Spirit out on His people in a way that had never been done before. Now, if you look at the passage, it doesn't say that it was the first day of the week. It doesn't say that it was the Lord's day. But, we can do a little bit of math and figure out that it was. Pentecost... Penta, five. Pentecost is in reference to uh, 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 a meeting that happened 50 days after the the Passover Sabbath. This was something, this is just something where they would meet. And again, it was 50 days after the Sabbath Passover or the Passover Sabbath. Now, a little bit of math is, is, is easy to figure this out. If you have the Passover Sabbath, If you move forward 49 days, that's seven weeks. That's on another Sabbath day, right? That's on a Saturday. Well, if Pentecost is 50 days, 
then that's on a Sunday. First day of the week. And on the first day of the week, the Lord pours out His Spirit in a way that it had never been poured out before. Now when I'm saying that, I'm not saying God had never poured out His Spirit on anybody and that the Spirit had never done anything, but I'm saying Pentecost is a special thing. And it's the, it's the beginning of God doing what He said He would do in Joel 2. Okay, then we get some direct references. Acts chapter 20 verse 7 makes it clear that the disciples came together on the first day of the week. The disciples of Christ were coming together on the first day of the week. 1 Corinthians 16.2, and I'll send you these notes if I'm going fast and you can't write them down. 1 Corinthians 16.2, Paul assumes that the church is going to be coming together on the first day of the week. Okay, He assumes they're going to do that. And so he says, whenever you come together, raise money for these churches on the first day of the week. That's when he assumed they would be meeting. And then in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, by the time John gets to, um, to Revelation 1 and he gets to writing this, um, he simply refers to it as the Lord's Day. It had become an established day, an established pattern. I mean, you can look back and read church history and see that, but also whenever you look at Scripture, you begin to hear less about the Sabbath and you begin to hear more about the first day of the week or Again, what commonly is called today and what apparently had just um, become a common name for it, that is the Lord's Day. I remind you, John was writing his letter to people assuming they would know what he was talking about. And he just simply says the Lord's Day. So why do we meet on the first day of the week instead of the seventh? Well, the quick answer is because that's when the New Testament saints met. Because that's when Christ rose. And so we gather together to, on, on Sundays, on the first day of the week, to celebrate the fact that this is the day that Christ rose from the dead. Now, number three, this is the question really we've been getting at. <clears throat> Does the Scripture speak of, and really we're thinking about the New Testament here, does the New Testament speak of the Lord's Day as the Christian Sabbath? That's the big question. Does the New Testament ever refer to the Lord's Day or speak about the Lord's Day as the Christian Sabbath? Now, for your convenience... I've posted all the passages in the New Testament that refer or connect the Lord's Day to the Christian Sabbath on the wall behind me. Okay, See them? That's because they're not there. Right? There is not a single passage in the New Testament that connects the Lord's Day as the Christian Sabbath. Okay. Search, read, look. Okay. It's just not there you do find out in the book of Acts that there were some Christians who were Jews who still observed the Sabbath for a little while and they observed the Lord's Day. But you don't find anywhere where any of the apostles or Christ make any sort of equation or, 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 or equate the Lord's Day with the Sabbath or put any Sabbath restrictions on the Lord's Day. Now, we have something better than that. I said earlier, we can't make an argument from 
from silence, although I think that's a pretty good argument that I just gave, the fact that if, if uh, the, the Sabbath was the Christian, was the, uh, if the Lord's Day was the equivalent to the Christian Sabbath, it seems like God would have said something about it, but He didn't. But if we want something concrete and specific, turn to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. All right. Acts chapter 15. Let me start reading in verse 24. It says, For as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good unto us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent therefore Judas and Silas who shall tell you the same things by mouth. So here's the, here's the setup. There were some who had gone to the Gentiles and told them, you need to keep certain aspects of the Mosaic law. Okay, you need to make sure that you're being circumcised. You need to keep the law. And, and, and they're saying, we, we never commanded that. We never sent anybody to you for that. And so in order to clear things up, we're sending our brothers, uh, Judas and Silas, to clear this up. Now here's, here's their conclusion. Here's what they say to the Gentiles who were being told they needed to live like Jews. Verse 28, For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us, to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication, from which if you keep yourselves, ye shall do well. Fare you well. Okay, that was the letter. Now, this is what they say. These are the things that it would be good for you to abstain from. Do not eat meats that are sacrificed to idols. Okay. Now we already know in Romans chapter 14, other places in the New Testament, Paul clears this up as a liberty issue. In the early church, they're wrestling through, how do we deal with this whole thing? And so he says, these are the things you need to make sure you're, you're taking care of. Don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Do not drink blood. Um, Abstain from things that are strangled and from fornication. Now, this is the prime place for Paul to say or for whoever to say. And keep the Sabbath laws. It's not there. It's the prime place for him to say, make sure that on the Lord's day. You adhere to the Sabbath laws. He doesn't say it. He says it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and it seemed good to us that you would just observe these things. 
Now, another thing in the same vein here that is, um, that is interesting is that when you get into the list of sins that we find in the New Testament, you know, Paul has these places, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, uh, Galatians 5, 19 through 21, the works of the flesh, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, when men wax worse and worse, and, and in the last days they will do all these kinds of things. Um, you can find reference to every single one of the Ten Commandments except for commandment number four. The Sabbath is never mentioned. You hear people being condemned as idolaters. Ephesians 4 condemns unedifying speech or dishonoring the Lord. Those are common themes in the New Testament. Don't do that. You, you, you see being addressed the dishonoring of parents, murderers, adulterers, stealing, lying, covetousness. Those are all reiterated and condemned in the New Testament. The one thing you never find is Paul condemning or Peter or any of the New Testament writers condemning someone as a Sabbath breaker. Isn't that interesting? If that was a, if that was a, 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 a carryover the Sabbath over to the Lord's Day? If you had these Gentiles, you know, some say, well, you know what? It was just kind of assumed that they would know that. Well, you've got to assume what they were assuming before you can come to that conclusion. And our assumptions are not authoritative. And to assume that a Gentile who didn't know a thing about growing up under Jewish law would have automatically applied Sabbath regulations to the Lord's Day is a pretty silly assumption. So if, if when Scripture is speaking of the Lord's Day, if the Lord's Day is simply the Christian Sabbath, these regulations carry over. Um, I'm trying to figure out, is this the case or is it not? when we look and see what the New Testament actually says and what the New Testament doesn't say about these things, um, there is no biblical information, no text of Scripture that would lead us to believe that you should treat the Lord's Day as the Christian Sabbath from a Mosaic Law standpoint. That there are all these extra rules and regulations of what you can and cannot do. So that leaves us to our last question, which is in many ways the most important question and the one you've been waiting three weeks for me to get to. And that is, how are we supposed to handle the Lord's Day? Now, I thought that I was going to be finished with this series in three messages. First, I thought I could hit it in one, and then I thought two, and then I thought three, and it's going to be four. It won't be five, okay? We'll, we'll do it in four. But this is a big enough topic that it needs a message um, to answer the question. But I will give you in short what we'll expand on next week. Look in Hebrews chapter 10. How are we supposed to handle the Sabbath day? Hebrews 10.
In Hebrews 10, starting in verse 23, it says, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much more, so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now, Hebrews 10, um, verse 25, gives us a direct command that we should not be forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Okay, so it's it would be easy based on unless you were here last week and you heard what I said at the end of the message, it would be easy based on what I've said today, some of what I said last week, to think, well, my goodness, Brother Lewis just thinks that the Lord's Day is some willy-nilly day where you just do whatever you want to because there's no Sabbath restrictions and no Sabbath requirements. Well, no, that's not the case. And the New Testament doesn't treat it that way either. When you're thinking about what should be happening on the Lord's Day, in short, On Sunday, first day of the week, the Lord's Day, your highest priority should be assembling with the saints for worship and for fellowship. So so some might say, you know, I'm not for all that legalistic stuff either. So some people make a big deal out of missing church on Sunday and, and, uh, you know, that's just legalism. No, that's not legalism. Now, when you look to see what the New Testament has to say, and you look to see the provisions that the, that the Lord has made for us and the priorities that the Lord has set for us, again, we're going to look at all of that next week. When we assemble, there is, outside of you know providential hindrances, things that come up as far as um, unexpected, there is nothing that should be higher on your list of priorities than to gather in God's house on God's day to worship with God's people. This really elevates worship above and beyond the Sabbath restrictions. You know, we've grown accustomed, when I say we, I just mean culturally, to think about Sunday morning worship as being a one-hour event. Well, the New Testament calls it the Lord's day, not the Lord's hour. Right? Some people think it's just so much. This is just overboard. My goodness, you guys have services, prayer at ten, and then you got to stick around for lunch and come back in the afternoon. Yes, yeah, the Lord's day. It's the Lord's day. It's not the Lord's hour. It's not the Lord's half hour. It's the Lord's day. And on the Lord's Day, we assemble. And we assemble for worship and we assemble for fellowship. And we have some liberty in the way that we do that as a church as far as whether we have an evening service or an afternoon or whatever that is. But brothers and sisters, God puts a high priority on your active participation in worship and in fellowship whenever His people assemble. Now, we assemble on the Lord's Day, right? And we could, we could even stretch Hebrews 10 out to other times of assembling as well. 
Okay, we, we assemble on Wednesdays. You say, oh, you mean I have to come out on Wednesdays? No, you get to come out on Wednesdays. Okay. The, 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 the Sabbath was a schoolmaster that was supposed to point you to something. And it was supposed to point you to something far greater. And that is the rest that you have in Christ. And you enter into that by faith. And Hebrews 10 tells us that if we're going to endure, if we're going to be faithful, if we're going to hold fast, we need one another. This corporate worship is, is for the glory of God, but it's also for the edification of the saints. And in God's economy, it's a high priority. Now, let me, let me say it this way. It's much more difficult for you to devote yourself to a life of loving God and loving neighbor than it is for you to decide you're not going to watch TV on Sunday. It's much more difficult for you to invest your life in the saints, in the assembly, than it is for you to not put gas in your car on Sunday. So if you think, oh, we're lower in the bar. No, we're not lower in the bar. But the bar that God sets requires not just your hand, it requires your heart. And so whenever we come together next Sunday, we're going to talk about how do we handle the Lord's day? What is it that we're supposed to be doing? If it's not a Sabbath in the sense of the Sabbath laws being imposed on uh, the Lord's day, then what and how are we supposed to treat this day? Let's pray. Father, um, again, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You have spoken and that You have called us to live off of every word that proceeds out of Your mouth. And so we pray that You would um, guide us, that Your Word would be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. I pray that You would give us clarity. And I pray that You would bless us to be faithful to put time and effort into mining the riches of Scripture to see what You have said and that we would live off of those things. We thank You for the Lord's Day. We thank You for what You've given us in Christ and in the assembly. And we pray that we would be faithful to please You in how we handle that. In Jesus' name, Amen.